Welcome back, guys, to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. The end of 2019 is almost upon us, and I'm happy to say that I've gotten to 10 episodes. This is the 10th episode of the podcast, and hopefully I can say the same thing when I get to 100 episodes and eventually 1,000 episodes, if I can think of content for 1,000 episodes. I hope so. But today I had on a very special guest. It is Dr. Eric Helms. I got to know Eric pretty well over the last year. I've been following him for many, many years. But this year in particular, I got to meet Eric on a number of occasions, spend a lot of time with him in the US and get to know him on a personal basis. Eric does a lot of podcasts. He's the research and development chief for 3D Muscle Journey, who I have personally been a client of for my last few competitive seasons. And he puts out a ton of great information. But today I wanted to try and keep the podcast a little bit different and talk about perhaps Eric's journey to where he got to today and some of the key lessons that he learned along the way uh, through his journey from when he originally started in the Air Force all the way to where he is today and doing research at the University of Auckland and putting out a ton of great content. And not only does Eric put out a lot of great content, he's also a practitioner in terms of bodybuilding. He competes in weightlifting, he also competes in strongman, and he's just an all-around good athlete. So without further ado, and before actually I move on, I want to say please, please do give a rating and review. Thank you for those who do or have done that already. It really helps with the ratings and the reviews and the algorithms, etc., etc., but let's get into this podcast with Eric Helms, and I won't keep you waiting any longer. So please welcome Eric Helms. Eric, my man, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Adam, my, my, my pleasure, sir. It's good to chat with you again, man. It is, yeah. And for anybody not listening, I had the pleasure of competing with you on stage. Um, when was it now? It was quite a long time ago. Yeah, it would have been third weekend in July, and then I had the pleasure of eating with you <laughs> after yeah. Worlds. <laughs> yeah, and you got to see me eat like two kilos of sweets. Yeah, man, you did it. You did it. You did it right. You 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 got on the recovery train. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty fast. And I just want to say, um, well, I have you on air. I just want to thank you for all the the work that you've put out into into the community as as small as this community of bodybuilding and not just bodybuilding, but natural bodybuilding is. Um, I just want to thank you for that. And I kind of would, if, if anybody was asking what, who you like, who is Eric Helms? I personally would say Eric is like the modern day Lane Norton. So I mean, <laughs> it sounds kind of strange as if Lane Norton is like, you would swear by saying that he's like, you'd think he's 65 or something, but he's back in alive. the day. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah. But back in the day when I first got into the kind of the forums and the boards and I found natural bodybuilding, Lane was kind of like, when someone thinks like, who's the best natural bodybuilder? People think, oh, Lane Norton at the time, right? But he wasn't actually mm. even the best natural bodybuilder. But it's kind of like yourself now, like you're a very competitive natural bodybuilder. But if somebody was said like, who, who's the top natural bodybuilder? People that are kind of in it, everyone just thinks of Eric Helms as natural bodybuilding. Yeah, what, it's 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 a funny thing, like... um like the same thing happens in Olympic weightlifting. Like people are like, oh, Clarence Kennedy, and and like for example, yeah. he's not actually competing, but he he does he does train. He's incredibly good. I would say arguably across the field of like you know weightlifters, he's he's better than I am <laughs> than I am as across the field of bodybuilding. But I think when you have these uh, niche sports where you have someone who uh, ends up putting out information and they get a reasonable amount of a following or an audience. Um, they kind of become the only person who a lay audience, and when I say lay, I just mean not involved in the sport they're from, 
who kind of sees them as the only person in the sport. Um, you know, while, you know, if you ask me who the best natural bodybuilder would was, I, I'd probably give you a list of five names and most of the folks who think I'm, you know, some kind of good natural bodybuilder wouldn't even know who I'm talking about. So, yeah. Yeah. Funny, actually, Clarence Kennedy is from Ireland. He's from Galway. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing that guy is insanely strong and he can do oh, yeah. like backflips and stuff. Yeah, he, he's, he's incredibly impressive. Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's just, it's the case of one of those things where you get exposed to, um, someone through, through outside of their competition. Like, uh, people know that I compete in natural bodybuilding because like, it's my pictures, it's what I talk about and it's part of my quote unquote CV. Um, but it's, it's not like I got, you know, reasonably well known because I won the WNBF world, you know, because, no one gets reasonably well known from winning WNBF Worlds. It's always comes from some other other type of promotion. Yeah, yeah, it's it's surprising. Um, I was just reflecting on it after the WNBF Worlds uh, when I was going home from New York. I saw the winner, um, Kendall. I can't remember his second name. Mm, uh, yep. the, the the guy who won the, the heavyweight and the, the yep. overall the overall like, Kendall world champ. Awesome physique. Yeah, and and yeah, he's got a great physique and two time champion. But like nobody in the airport like even knew who he was like n not that i would expect people would but just goes to show that even like the world the best bodybuilder per se it's 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 not that you, you don't become a celebrity you know so it's 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 interesting no yeah the um i would say that this is one of those sports where uh your 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 well-knownness doesn't extend outside of the fans of the sport um there's very few I would say iron game sports where that does happen. And actually I think strongman's probably the only one. Um, um, I think, but only to a certain degree, like everyone knows half Thor from game of Thrones, but there are some people who know like Martin Lisi's or Brian Shaw, um, because they've, because of their, their position in, in strongman, they've gotten to do like specials and people are interested in what they eat, how they train, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, the world's strongest man has been televised for a while, but it's kind of one of those, um, you know, like kind of freak one-off shows, like kind of things, like worldwide. So the wild, wild world of wild world of sports kind of feel, where it's one of those kooky, strange sports people watch. And I think um, when you think about what has probably the most entertainment value, you know, sitting through a twelve-hour pre-judging and finals is probably not at the top of the list. Um, likewise, probably. watching people do two or three lifts to a max, uh, you know, for a total of you know ten seconds you know, six or nine times and watching that happen over and over and over again without any kind of back and forth that also doesn't have much appeal. But if you watch two, two huge, massive guys racing each other while lifting heavy weights that you couldn't even fathom lifting once in your entire life and strange implements, and it seems to change all the time. Now you've kind of got like, you know, CrossFit with, with, with mind blowing weights, you know, and, and then, then the appeal comes there. So it's, it's kind of the, uh, I'd say it's the one sport in the iron game where, you can garner um, attention just from what you do in the sport. You know, if you think about even the classics like Arnold, Arnold wasn't um, incredibly popular because he won seven Olympias because not everyone knows who Lee Haney is, right? And he's won eight. Uh, he's incredibly popular because of what he did uh, outside of bodybuilding and how he used bodybuilding as a launch pad. Mm, so, so now I understand your motive to get into strongman sports. It's purely for the fame aspect, right? The goal is to become the governor of California, yes. 100%. <laughs> you got you got to work on your German accent a little bit. But Eric, I want <laughs> Eric, I wanted to uh, have a more conversational uh, topic today or, or conversation. But talk us through 
how you first got into competitive bodybuilding or, or maybe even before that if we take a step back into science or started to you know, build your career in bodybuilding obviously you started with your masters but talk us through how you you first got into this you, you started in the air force right yeah i mean i first started lifting weights well the funny thing was is that i the first time i ever lifted weights it was for i would say either my freshman or sophomore year um as either part of track and field or maybe with uh another someone who went to my high school who was a an avid bodybuilder when i was just kind of a a guy who ran track in like our apartment gym and both times I really didn't like it. I can actually think of a number of times where I got exposed to weightlifting and I was just like, this is dumb, you know, and it didn't, I didn't get bit by the books. I didn't have any emotional attachment to it. So there was early in high school. And then at a few spots when I ran track and field, uh, there was then once again, when I was in the early in my air force career, um, a good friend of mine, uh, who was uh, also in in like my basic training and then my my, my training with me uh, for my job? He exposed me to lifting weights, and neither time did it really click. I was just kind of hanging out with them, and then it wasn't until 2005 uh, when I was in a pretty stressful spot. I couldn't travel home. I was in a long distance relationship, and there was a lot of um, emotional strife going on at that time. But I couldn't travel because of the restrictions on my ability to take leave at the time, and I had. I needed some kind of outlet, and I reached out to a friend of mine, uh, Patrick, who's, uh, you know, had Arnold Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding. He was uh, had a really good physique, and he trained very regularly. He was in incredibly good shape, and uh, he kind of taught me the ropes. And once it had some kind of emotional juice behind it, that's when I really got bit by the iron bug. So I had on and off done some lifting, um, either for social reasons or as a part of uh, sport, and it never clicked. Um, but once I had that, uh, deeper meaning to it, that's when I couldn't, I couldn't keep myself out of the gym for the next, well, still today. So that was, you know, almost 15 years ago. And was that also the, the beginning of your academic career? Were, were you always someone that was interested in sciences or were you a smart, you know, teenager or were you good in school? Because when people think of you now, they, you know, Eric is so intelligent or he's got a lot of knowledge and obviously built that up over the years. But was that something that you're always interested in or was it that you just began lifting weights and then you kind of got interested in the science behind it? Yeah, I've really tricked people into thinking I'm smart, um, which has <laughs> worked to my advantage. But no, seriously, the, the um, I was very much, I like to use the example of, uh, of kind of Vince Vaughn in dodgeball where his kind of life philosophy is if you don't try very hard then you won't fail so you set a low bar and you can always meet your own expectations and i would say that was true for pretty much uh anything that the outside world put expectations on me so for example i think i'm reasonably intelligent um and i would be able to get into like ap classes and honors classes in high school uh, advanced placement is what AP stands for. But then I wouldn't push myself very far in them, and I would just get like a B because I felt like I could kind of rest on my laurels and get a B in almost any class. But getting into the advanced placement and honors classes, you get additional points for your grade. It's like it gets bumped up to the next level. So you could get a 4.0 credit, which is the highest you can get uh, by getting a B. So it's kind of like a B counts as a regular A. So I would get into these advanced placement classes and just kind of make it through Um and I think I certainly had a fear as a, as a very, as a teen, I would say, and maybe into my early 20s, that if I did really push myself and I gave it my all and I failed, that it, it said something that I was afraid that might have been true about me, uh, that I wasn't actually as, as smart or as capable uh, as I felt I needed to be to be accepted or to, to accept myself. 
Um, but outside of things where there was some kind of social pressure, um, you know, whether that was, you know, sport or uh, intelligence or academic grades, etc. Um, man, I would get obsessed and I would get quite good at things. And these got applied to things you might expect from a, uh, you know, nerdy uh, only child who, you know, liked typical stuff that the nerdy only child boys do like video games and uh, like role-playing games and reading fantasy books and sci-fi. Um, I've read probably a book a month in the sci-fi or fantasy genre since I was, man, like 10 or 11. Um, I was really, really good at a whole bunch of video games that are now probably not even ones that most people would recognize if they're, unless they're in their 30s and, uh, and stuff like that. And I would just get really, really interested in it. So uh, an interesting thing occurred when I got bit by the quote-unquote bodybuilding bug uh, is that that obsessive nature of my personality now got applied to bodybuilding. Um, and I have a very difficult time finding interest in things outside of the thing that I get obsessed with at any given time. So, for example, when I was really, really stoked about playing Halo back in the day, that's pretty much all I did outside of my free time. Same thing with, like, Baldur's Gate back in the day. Um, or, uh, you know, like hip-hop when I was into it and writing. Uh, I was very into creative writing and poetry and then... Um, and then like underground hip hop for, for one phase of my life. So when bodybuilding came around, um, that's when I knew it was probably going to become my career. Uh, one of the things I wanted to challenge myself with was actually finishing something, uh, because that kind of Vince Vaughn element of my personality, when things got tough and I wasn't sure if I could push myself and make it past it, I didn't want that potential of failing. So I'd be like, ah, no, I don't, I'm not interested anymore, or it's not, it doesn't do it for me. And I would kind of pull out early. Um, so with bodybuilding, one of the things I told myself was, uh, let, let's see this all the way. And I fortunately had very good mentoring early on. I had some actual competitive bodybuilders and folks who've been lifting for a long time. So I didn't have this mentality that, that somehow it would, uh, you know, I'd get a great physique in six months. I didn't really have perfect expectations because you, you never know. And, you know, the supplement industry fools you into thinking things happen faster than they do or you can get further than you actually can. Um, but I knew that this was going to be a multi-year investment if I was to build the kind of physique I wanted. And there were also some fortunate occurrences that happened along the way. In 2005, uh, a local natural bodybuilding show ran by the WNBF that uh, Rodney Hilaire put on for natural bodybuilding aficionados. They know that in the mid-2000s, he was the reigning heavyweight champ for a while in the WNBF. And uh, he put this on in Augusta, Georgia, where I was stationed in the Air Force at the time. And they needed... Um, test judges. So they only had just enough to actually judge the show and they needed to have a couple test judges. They were hoping to kind of build it out there. So I test judged and because I was a bodybuilding fan from like the magazines and reading it online and everything, um, I did pretty well except for the figure division, which I got totally wrong. But <laughs> I had uh, perfect agreement with the, the scores for the judges on the bodybuilding. And that was my first exposure to natural bodybuilding. And I found, oh, there's this whole world out there because um, I was kind of under the impression like you take bodybuilding as far as you can and once you kind of reach your natural potential then you decide whether or not you want to go and get on gear and then that's what kind of like the IFBB pro path and I was so obsessed with lifting and all that that I was starting to consider competitive bodybuilding and then in 05 I got exposed to natural bodybuilding shortly after that the YMCA where I was working as a personal trainer decided to put on a powerlifting meet and I learned about that and so from very early on my kind of general, I want to lift weights to get big and strong to deal with this emotional trauma got shifted towards, ooh, I want to compete in strength in physique sport and do it naturally. 
and uh, that that kind of became my everything. And like I said, I was working as a personal trainer at the Y. That was the only really career path I was considering at that point because the Air Force was. Um, well, I could have stayed in that career path. I didn't want to work for the government. I didn't want to stay in linguistics, um, which was what I did in the Air Force. And I was very interested in, in learning everything I could about bodybuilding. And I thought being a personal trainer uh, was a great vehicle for that uh, so that I could learn about programming, nutrition, uh, psychology, all that. So uh, that became from that moment where I fell in love with bodybuilding and realized I didn't want to be a linguist anymore. Uh, that's when my career, my intellectual, my personal focus, I became an you know, athlete, coach, trainer, academic, uh, or at least put on that path uh, sometime in 05. And uh, you know, I wouldn't fully realize that until I had you know, completed my education, which happened in 2017 and started my own business and I think all the things that I'm known for now. So that was uh, the beginning of a, a 10 plus year commitment. But um, and one that I challenged myself to stick to because I previously did not stick to things. It's funny that you say that, that you were previously somebody who would almost self-sabotage and, and not see things through. And just with the nature of natural bodybuilding, there is like no end point per se. So it's like you can never, ever finish it, even if you try. Um, I mean, at some point you will you'll ultimately die, but um, there's no end point to do natural bodybuilding unless your goal is like just to compete or that's all that your your goal is just to get a medal or whatever it is. Yeah, and I think that was actually a really, really good thing. Um, I don't think I fully knew it at the time, but uh, kind of challenging myself to do that and then deciding to get on stage and then exactly what you were saying where there is no end point to natural bodybuilding eventually kind of opened my mind and had tremendous uh, changes on my personality and who I was um, because I went through the process of contest prep and knew from the start I wasn't going to quit. And that was probably the first thing that I 100% finished. I did, of course, complete an enlistment in the Air Force and, you know, for a, you know, like an, a 17-year-old, 18-year-old young man who kind of has that Vince Vaughnish background, like I mentioned, on the self-sabotage elements, going through basic training was a really good experience for me that built some self-efficacy, made me realize that I could be a top performer. And then uh, my career field was one that was very, very demanding. There was two years of um, basically eight hours a day for two years straight with only uh, three weeks off in total of learning Arabic in an immersion environment and we had about a 50% fail rate in our class and I was like the 51st person like I just passed by the hair on my chinny chin chin and uh, <laughs> I I realized that it was there's absolutely nothing wrong with pushing yourself completing something and not necessarily being the best but still you know that, that I succeeded and uh, that, that gave me a lot more nuance to some of my my attitudes and so when I got into bodybuilding um, I was like, hey, you know what? You're not going to know how good you can be until you push yourself for, for a decade. Um, and that was, I remember there was a specific competitive bodybuilder who, 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 was, who was natural who mentioned that to me. He was, and he was like, uh, you know, people don't realize that bodybuilding is a lifestyle and you're not going to know what you're going to get out of it until you put in a decade. And I, I took that to heart. I was like, okay, I'm, shoot, I'm, I'm only 21, 22. All right. So in my thirties, I'll know if I, I've done this thing. And at that point you're, you're in, like, there's no out, like whether you, like, it's not like you yeah. put in 10 years of work. Um, and you go, Oh, I didn't build a very good physique. Well, I'm never going to lift again. You know? Um, so I, I basically put myself in a position where I was, uh, the only way to survive, if you will, 
and to not have an existential crisis was to become more intrinsically motivated uh, to, to find more meaning in what I was doing and to focus on the journey. And that's probably no surprise that I hooked up with uh, the 3D Muscle Journey crew and that I now have something called Iron Culture and that I'm uh, very much involved in what I would say is almost a spiritual way with, with the Iron Game and that I find a lot of meaning in my life uh, beyond just simply uh, the competitive outlet. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, and thanks for sharing that. Um, so, back in two thousand and five, when you did this, was that when you did your first show, or when you when you were just uh, working as a personal trainer? Yeah, so let's see. I think I actually started lifting in oh four. I got my timeline a little wrong. So I started lifting in oh four. I became a personal trainer in oh five. I was a test judge uh, either in early oh six or late oh five. I can't quite remember. I think it might have been oh six. Um, and that might have been like in March. I want to say maybe March or April. I think that's when the uh, the WBF Iron Eagle was held back back then, Rodney Hilaire's show. So in in early to mid two thousand six, I became aware of natural bodybuilding, and then in August is when that powerlifting meet was put on. So sometime by the mid year of two thousand six, I was kind of all in, and I knew what my goals were. And I remember this is right around the time in late oh five, early oh six, I started posting on the bodybuilding dot com forums. And I found who you brought up before. Uh, he, I knew him as Straight Flexed at the time. That was Lane Norton's handle. Yeah. Um, he was a moderator on the forums. And he also had just started around that time uh, Inside the Life, which was a kind of uh, documentary style in kind of the old MTV, like uh, like real world kind of style uh, series online of Inside the Life of a Natural Bodybuilder. And I got introduced to you know, like Jim Cordova and some of the other WBF personalities and Lane Norton's take on peaking and started reading his articles. And um, one of the things I found early on was that because of my kind of obsessive personality, I was just as interested in the science and the uh, the application of bodybuilding theory and concepts as I was as the actual experience of being in the gym. And very early on, I got super interested in the scientific side of things. And I found that I excelled there. And this is one of those cases where I got a lot more respect in the bodybuilding world early on for my ability to engage, be, be a critical thinker, uh, you know, put forth good ideas, and my experience as a trainer, I was successful there overall. Obviously, I had many of the same errors most personal trainers make early on, um, but um, I was pretty good on the theory and practice side as a trainer and intellectual for bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength sport, and I think that really motivated me to keep pushing in that direction. And that's really how I kind of carved out that niche for me. I, I was rewarded. And I found that I was probably better intellectually as a bodybuilder, uh, researcher, coach, etc., than I was physically as a competitive bodybuilder. Um, I don't think I'm, I'm a slouch by any means. But I, I always find it hilarious that there are you know people online who think I'm like a really good natural bodybuilder when I would say I'm a, uh, a good enough amateur that I will probably turn WMDF Pro one day, but I am not yet. And in the pro ranks, I think I've got a lot of work before I'm even a mid-level pro. So that's that's the kind of thing where, you know, certain elements of culture in the community, uh, you know, they kind of limit the beliefs of what people think they can accomplish. You know, I've heard people go like, yeah, well, Eric Helm is the best natural pilot because everyone else is on gear. And I'm like, God, if you only knew. So it's uh, it's it's a funny thing. But yeah, I... Um, the, the intellectual side of it was rewarded, and then I kept putting my finger in deeper, and then I really started to apply myself 
And uh, kind of each step of the way, I built more self-efficacy. And I'm kind of skipping ahead of the story, but I remember completing my bachelor's while I was a full-time trainer and thought, oh, that's awesome. And then I got my CSCS, which is the uh, one of the higher level strength conditioning certifications you can get. And once I did that, I was like, you know, maybe I could do my master's. And then once I finished my my master's, I thought maybe I could actually do like a research-based degree and give back. And I did my second master's and moved out to New Zealand to my PhD. And it kind of just snowballed. Um, The more I uh, put in effort, saw that that effort was fruitful and I was producing things that were useful and appreciated by the community and that I was becoming more intelligent uh, and that I was that it was having beneficial effects on my clients and also my own physique, uh, the more I was continuing to push further. And I really started to enjoy just the process of being a science communicator. And each step of the way, it it opened my eyes that I could take it a little further. I never thought that I had the uh, ability or drive to do, you know, a, a, a master's, let alone a PhD, uh, let alone, uh, you know, be working as an academic after the fact or, or being a reviewer. Uh, for 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 mass, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I was kind of building the road ahead of me that I walked, even though that that was my goal from the start was to just take this as far as I could. I don't think I knew how far I could lay that track ahead of me. And uh, each time I put down a new track and I didn't fall off, I was like, oh, maybe maybe I'm a little more capable than I think I am. So in many ways, ironically, you know, putting on dream tan and and starving myself and flexing in a speedo on stage really is is the kind of the the pathway to me getting a lot more self-efficacy more belief and being a much more capable human uh than than i thought i could before uh and that's really why i feel such a strong desire to pay it forward and give back to the sport uh, because it truly changed uh my life's trajectory in a very positive way yeah i think you need to give yourself probably a little bit uh more slack on the on the the bodybuilding side of things you're you played very well this this season. How many shows did you compete in? Four or five? Yeah, I did four shows, uh, and then uh, the, the very last one I competed in two divisions. So yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, I did the INBF uh, Polynesian Muscle Mayhem in April. It's kind of like a quote unquote warm up show early in the season, and then I did the INBF River City Classic, which is in Sacramento. And then when we competed together, it was two weeks later at the uh, the, the now famous. Uh, INBF Muscle Mayhem in Sacramento that used to be known as the Cap City that I did way back in 09, the year 3DMJ was formed, and then Jeff and I did it together is that for the 10-year anniversary. Um, and uh, yeah, very competitive show, as you know, and uh, you did very well. You got into the overall. That was an awesome overall. And then finally, I, I think three or four weeks after that, I did a show here, a uh, NZ IFBB natural show uh, in August, and that was the last one. And I, did, I tried out the uh, classic physique and also uh, bodybuilding division there so i did four shows and went through five different divisions and yeah i had a good season yeah so take it back a bit um when you were starting off your competitive seasons back in 09 correct 07 07 was um, my first competitive season yeah were you simultaneously doing your masters and, and what were your masters in so you you did your your bachelor's in sports or in exercise science if i'm not if i'm not wrong so yeah, 07, we, I, I had just gotten out of the Air Force, um, and then I stayed in where I was at Augusta, Georgia for a while until my wife got out of the Air Force. So both of us were linguists. Um, she and I both wanted to get into a career field we actually enjoyed. Neither one of us were 
uh, in love with our job in the Air Force. So in late 2006, we both moved to California, where my family is from, where she has some family, and where she went to high school. So we moved back. To, we moved to Sacramento, end of 2006. I left the YMCA there, where I'd been a trainer for about a year and a half, and kind of cut my chops learning how to be a personal trainer. Um, and then in January of 2007, I started my first contest prep. Um, and I did two shows in May. I did the INBA uh, Silver and Black, uh, which is an Oakland show. Silver and Black is the color of the Raiders, uh, our NFL pro team. And uh, that's where I met Alberto Nunez. That was also his first show. So that was my first uh, like natural bodybuilding in-person buddy who wasn't on the forums. And uh, then I did uh, the following weekend, I did a local NPC show. I just did basically the next show I could find because I was so burnt out from dieting. And that was uh, the NPC Contra Costa. And it was a very, two very different experiences as the first show I did uh, was a small kind of backyard natural show. Everyone was helping each other. All were like buddy, buddy, very mom and pop feeling. And the Contra Costa uh, is at uh, a university, Chabot College. And while the Silver and Black is at, typically at a high school, and I think there was maybe 50 total people in the show, while there was hundreds in the NPC show, there was 23 in the novice middleweights where I was. And the um, it was a, a national, uh, an NPC nationals qualifier. Uh, Jay Cutler, who had just won the Olympia, if I recall correctly, was the guest poser who I met. And it was just a gigantic show. So it was a very, very different experience. I got to see kind of the full spectrum of bodybuilding that season. Um, and that was at the same time as I was doing my undergraduate work. Um, so I did a, I was going to school at the local uh, junior college, which is basically uh, the community college that you can do all of your general ed education. So I know you're from, from Ireland, but um, in, the, in the U.S., we have a system where your bachelor's is typically four years in length, and the first two years are primarily dedicated to general education. Regardless of your major, it looks pretty much the same, and only the last two years do you specialize. So I got a associate's degree, which is essentially if you do the first two years and just graduate there, and then you would there then from there go on to a bachelor's. I did an associate's degree in liberal, liberal arts at the local community college, and I got my certifications. And then, uh, I want to say in 08... I took my my associate's degree and I started a online bachelor's degree program uh, that you could only get into if you were a full-time personal trainer at the time, or at least part-time, and that was in fitness and wellness. It was a sports management degree, uh, so it was like half fitness and wellness, half fitness uh, economics, and uh, it was it was designed for people who were going to make a career in fitness, and it was one of the few online degree programs at the time, and it was still kind of a sketchy thing, so I spent a lot of time investigating and talking to prior graduates and looking it up. And I found that um, this is at the, the Cal U. It's California University of Pennsylvania, which is funny because it's a school in Pennsylvania, but there's a city called California. And it's actually a pretty well-known school where a lot of uh, athletic trainers get their, uh, their, their, their program and they started or get their degree in person. And they started an online program uh, focused on, you know, fitness professionals. And it was the highest ranked at the time. And they had a, they just, started the master's or they had the master's for a few years and they just started the bachelor's. So my cousin had done the master's, um, really liked it and said, it's perfect for someone who's kind of self-motivated is working full time, uh, and likes to, and can only, only has some time to study on their own and is self-directed. And I said, sweet. So I tried the bachelor's and I had such a good experience that I went on to do the master's. So I finished my bachelor's in 09, uh, and then started the master's immediately after the next semester. 
uh, and and that was pretty tough um, because I competed in 09 and I also competed in 2011. So I competed my second season uh, through the tail end of my bachelor's, and then I competed in my uh, third season in 2011 at the tail end of my master's while I was also preparing for my research-based master's that I came to New Zealand for. So uh, I, I had not learned my lesson. Multiple times I was in school <laughs> while doing a bodybuilding prep, uh, and that was something I decided not to do again once I actually got involved in research here in New Zealand. Yeah, I just um, I kind of experienced that with the tail end of my prep this year uh, from September to November being mm. in, in a master's program. It just mentally is just stressful with the t- not just the time management, but just you're just not in the best kind of mindset to be able to give an, enough, you know, um, you know, mental resources to to studying and to putting all your effort. And I think you mentioned in a previous podcast that if you're going to do both, one of them is going to take a hit. And I feel like that probably did happen. I didn't do the best in either of, of either one. So I didn't do the best in my natural bodybuilding or nor did I do the best in or what I could have done. Um, in my in my master's degree, but I guess it's a lesson learned, which you clearly didn't learn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I eventually learned it, but it took me two <laughs> two goes, you know. And um, so, and I think I think it's there's it's also a valuable thing to learn because like life doesn't stop for academics or bodybuilding. So if you if you recognize that you can't do everything optimally all the time, and that's just some kind of a pie in the sky lack of reality. And you wouldn't want to anyway. You know, most of the bodybuilders who I know who try to control their environments to make their bodybuilding better, they eventually just get less and less resilient and, you know, mess up their relationships, including their relationship with their body and their food, um, become shittier humans and temporarily better bodybuilders, but eventually just burn out. You know, if you look at most every successful bodybuilder, and when I mean successful, I don't mean just one once in a local show and then stop, but I mean, has a career in bodybuilding and competing at the highest level they're capable of for a long time, they find a way to integrate it into their life. So, you know, I didn't do it a third time, but I did learn from the first two times, you know? So the, the only B I got in my undergrad was because I got a due date wrong. And I just, I think I transposed the month and the day in my head and I just completely missed the due date on a big project. And you know, the, the highest grade I could get with the available points remaining was a B. And I was just kicking myself because I actually had the project done in advance and I just didn't submit it on time. It was just a complete bonehead diet brain moment. Um, so I, I made a commitment when I did my master's that um, my priorities would be in the right place. And my master's, I got a 4.0 in um, and I used... I learned a lot. So I, I was all of my cardio sessions that I did on a piece of cardio equipment. And this is again, it's 2011. So it was before a lot of eBooks really, I would just bring my textbooks with me and use all of my cardio time as uh, studying time. So I got all of my reading done be, through prep, if you will. Um, and then um, I, I, I had a life in 2011 that was I truly didn't have time for anything more. Like a lot of people say, I don't have time for that. What they really mean is I don't have energy for that. I'm burnt out. Um, And I probably only had two or three hours to myself every day uh, because I was teaching 30 hours a week at a personal training uh, uh, college. Basically, they had an associate's degree program for personal trainers. 
I was designing courses there. I still had a few clients. I was still doing some work in a studio through 2010 and 11 and a little bit of in-home personal training. But then I also had a full-time roster at 3DMJ. And on top of that, I was finishing my last semester of my master's um, and preparing for my master's uh, in, in New Zealand. I was starting to work on my literature review and getting the initial paperwork done. Uh, and I was actually doing some work for my, my advisor out in, uh, in New Zealand. I was teaching a graduate level course on uh, enhancing muscular performance and doing grading while I was still in California. Uh, and then finally, of course, I was doing my 2011 contest prep. So I basically, I would wake up and I would do client work till about noon. Uh, and then we would go to the gym if it was a training day. And I would use that time where I almost always was doing cardio to study. Uh, and then I would come home, do my, uh, my work for 3DMJ as well as my, my schoolwork that I had to get done. And then I would teach night classes, get home at 10 p.m., um, and then we would watch like one episode of Netflix. My wife and I, I go to bed and do it all over again. And I had to save up all this money to go to New Zealand because it was very expensive. And I actually ran a kind of online cyber begging campaign. And I'm still very <laughs> grateful remember, to yeah. this day because I had a lot of people who um, donated over three different periods. I got like a total of like 5,000 USD. And it was absolutely necessary because by when it was all said and done, we'd you know paid for our security deposit, gotten our car, um, gotten our cats over, moved there, bought our furniture, settled ourselves in, and uh, you know I'd gotten my, my tuition fees paid, and uh, you know I had to get a loan and start to pay that off. We were down to just a couple grand that we lived off for a while uh, until I was able to get my roster back up and, and get steady income, and I had to get a stipend, which I was very fortunate I was able to do for my master's. So it was it was just enough, and that was with me saving all the money I made for a year. That didn't go into expenses and, uh, and doing all that. So that was, it was almost easy in a way because there were no options. Like I, there was no time for me to decide when and what I was going to do. There were time slots available for, um, you know, one master's, time slot available for another, time slot available for uh, when I was at work teaching, uh, time slot available for when I was working with my clients, time spot available for my, for, for my studies and my, my programs. And, and that was it. So after you did that first master's, uh, was it daunting to try and uh, take on another master's or was that something that you knew you wanted to do straight away? And Was it because one was in more so in the exercise science and the other was nutritional sciences? Is that why you decided to do two or is it because the second was more so research-based? Yeah, the I had a, a really cool team when I was teaching at uh, what was Bryan College and what became Bryan University where that... Um, associate's degree program for personal trainers was, uh, that was where I really became, uh, where I really started to accelerate my learning. There's, you know, there, there's the cliche in academics that, that nothing teaches you better than teaching. Um, and this was, I was teaching there in 2010 and 2011 and briefly into 2012. And this was right when the economy had started to recover after the crash. So we had basically two types of students, folks who were just out of high school, who decided they wanted to become personal trainers. Um, and they didn't quite fit into the categories of people who were going to the traditional university route. Um, and then we also had people who were middle-aged, who had lost a stable job, but were always into fitness and decided, you know what, now that I get back into the, the, uh, the workforce, I'm going to try a career in personal training. 
So trying to explain the same concepts to an 18-year-old who'd been lifting weights for maybe a couple years in high school um, and who just got out of classes, you know, six months ago, and a 40-year-old who has not been in school for, you know, 22 years, uh, but has been lifting weights for 22 years, they have a very different frame of reference. And for me, kind of sitting in between both of them in my late 20s with a fair amount of uh, academic and lifting experience, I had to kind of be the bridge between them both and teach to two very different audiences. And you really have to look at each concept from a very different angle and figure out how to teach it to the audience you have. And it makes you realize all the holes that you actually have in your knowledge, that you have all these heuristics in your head and you think you know things, but the questions that you get asked are questions that you never considered. So I really started to I gained a lot of confidence uh, while I was putting things into practice for myself as an athlete, for my clients who are general population, for my clients who are competitive strength athletes and bodybuilders through 3DMJ, teaching 18-year-olds and teaching middle-aged people all at the same time while also studying my master's. So I think I was gaining a lot of confidence, and I went from being a very bad teacher, kind of like I started as a relatively bad personal trainer, becoming good a good personal trainer, a good teacher. Um, and I was getting so much positive feedback and we had these ratings from the students and I was getting very highly rated. And while I was just completing a bachelor's and starting my master's, I was teaching alongside people who had master's degrees and PhDs. Um, you know, the requirement was to have a certainly certain nationally recognized uh, certifications, a bachelor's and, you know, a certain amount of industry experience or have a higher level degree and that. So we kind of had this broad spectrum. And, you know, there was um, a gentleman we called Dr. Z, not Dr. Zerdos. This is a different Dr. Z. And I give him a lot of credit because he encouraged me along with Dr. B. We had these two uh, PhD level uh, lecturers and administrators who, who worked at Bryan College who taught. And, and uh, they definitely were influ influential in my career. And they always encouraged me to go further. And they thought that I had uh, academic chops. So... Um, I was looking at local PhD programs, and I thought that you know the, the next evolution to go from my my bachelor's, which was in fitness and wellness, and then my master's, which was going to be in exercise science and performance enhancement, uh, was then to do a PhD. And I, at that point, I just figured, you know, I've got these online degrees, this experience, but I've never done research. A PhD is all about that, so I'll just get in wherever they, wherever they can take me. So I just started kind of looking around locally. Because, you know, that's where my career was. That's where the 3DMJ crew was. That's where the uh, the place I was teaching was at. That's where the, the personal training studio that I'd worked at for years was. So I was looking at local schools. And then one day um, I was asking Dr. Z, I was saying, hey, like, I really want to do applied stuff. Like, I want this to impact my career as a, you know, bodybuilding and, and, uh, and coach and powerlifting and strength sport. And he said, well, you probably want to get a, you know, a PhD in, like, either sports nutrition or strength conditioning. And I was like, okay, cool. So where's that? And he was like, well, there's not many in the States. Uh, have you ever thought about looking at Australia? And my initial reaction was, I can't go to Australia. But then I thought, hold on. My primary income, besides teaching here, is online coaching. And I have clients in Australia. Why couldn't I go to Australia? And uh, the school that I started looking at was, um, was uh, Edith Cowan in Perth. And once I started looking at Edith Cowan, I thought I should look everywhere. So I started looking at schools in the UK and then... Uh, New Zealand. And eventually from everyone who I talked to and the emails I sent out, uh, I had a Skype with uh, John Cronin, uh, Professor John Cronin here at AUT, who would eventually become my 
uh, mentor supervisor for my master's and then my primary supervisor for my PhD and now my colleague and mentor just in, in academics in general who I owe a lot to, uh, we Skyped and he was the director of the Sports Performance Research Institute in New Zealand at the time, which is kind of a rotating role between the full-time professors. And that was just, it blew my mind. It was the first time someone in a high-level position who was a relative legend in our field just, you know, was happy to hop on Skype with me. And the feeling I got for AUT is what drew me there. Uh, and then what shook out as to why I went the direction of nutrition or training and, and what my degrees went to was the doors that opened and the constraints that came about from deciding, you know what, AUT is the place I want to go. I found out about AUT because in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research and the Strength and Conditioning Journal, a bunch of students were publishing very applied, interesting studies. I saw a study that came out in JSCR uh, that was on hormonal adaptations to uh, medium-load, high-volume training versus high-load, low-volume training, so kind of like powerlifting versus bodybuilding style and what adaptations occurred. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Uh, and then there was another study that was being done on bands and chains and strength adaptations in powerlifting. And there was another study by a guy named Justin Keogh, who eventually would uh, move on from AUT and uh, go to Australia to be an academic and ended up uh, being an examiner on my PhD. But anyway, way back then, he was doing research on strongman. And I was like, this is so cool. Like, this is a, uh, a university that has an SNC department that is specifically publishing research on strength sport. Um, so I was really interested in AUT. And then the experience I had Skyping with JC, uh, John Cronin, was great. And uh, I went into that kind of expecting it to be like the Western model, where generally you only go to a place if they have funding, they have a spot, and then you kind of let them know that you're familiar with their research and you slot into something that they're already doing. And John turned that on its head when I asked him, hey, you know, like, what, what projects you got? And he said, forget that. What do you want to study? And I was like, whoa. And he basically said, hey, if we can figure out a way to do it, I can find you the right supervisors. We've got a pretty damn good lab. We've got this new facility built called AUT Millennium. Um, and you'll have about uh, a couple grand to your name when you do your PhD. And then we just needed to figure out logistically what was my path forward. Now, in the... UK, New Zealand, Australian system, it's a little different than Canada and the US. If you're going to do a PhD, you're expected to already have research experience. Um, and as you know, um, you do shorter bachelors that are much more targeted. You don't have this two years of uh, you know, undergraduate degree that is purely based on general ed. You get pretty much right into your uh, area of interest when you do a bachelor's. So by the time a student in the New Zealand, Australia, UK system is getting to the point where they're going to do their PhD, They've had more coursework than someone in the, in the, in the U.S. Uh, New Zealand system typically. And that's why, uh, sorry, the U.S. Canadian system. So that's why in the U.S. and Canadian system, your first couple of years of a Ph.D. are your qualifications uh, and your, your qualifying exams and your, and your classes. But there are no classes by the time you get uh, to the Ph.D. in this system and you are required to have prior research experience. So since I had a master's by coursework only, I was actually required to get research experience. And there is a degree uh, that is pretty common, but not incredibly common. It exists uh, in the New Zealand, UK, Australian system called a Master's of Philosophy, or an MPhil for short. And it pretty much exists specifically for people who have uh, coursework-only masters, 
uh, or have done a postgraduate diploma or have done a, a professional master's. So essentially they've done the equivalent of all the master's coursework, but no master's thesis. So that means they don't qualify for a PhD, but they've already basically done the equivalent of all the master's coursework. So it is just a one-year master's thesis, and it's called a master of philosophy, kind of like what a PhD is, which is actually a doctorate of philosophy. So all PhDs are technically doctorates of philosophy, and then your topic defines the area. So anyway, would that be similar to would that ahead. be similar to an MRes? Um, a master's of research, yes, very similar. I think that's basically the same thing. Um, no coursework, you just go straight in and you start doing research once you've done a proposal and you've gotten your ethics approved. Um, so after that, you got straight into uh, after that one year research. What was your research topic for that one year in the the M Phil? Yeah. So when I started talking to John and I, he was like, you know, what do you want to study? And I said, I said, Hey, look, you know, my whole goal here is to, um, be an expert in the sports of strength sport and physique sport. And, um, so that kind of positioned me that I needed to be. So that's why if you look at my publication history now, fast forwarding to almost 2020, you'll see stuff on the psychology of physique sport. You'll see stuff on, uh, auto regulation and powerlifting. Uh, you'll see stuff on optimizing protein intake in bodybuilders. So some people might get exposed to my research and go, oh, he's a protein researcher. Other people go, oh, he's a, an auto regulation guy. And other people go, oh, he's like a eating disorder sports site guy. And I'm none of those. I'm actually just a strength sport and bodybuilding researcher. So if it intersects with something that is relevant to, to these pursuits uh, and ways that I can help people improve performance, my kind of tagline is improving sustainable performance. That means I kind of have to be a little more holistic inside of these sporting realms. So anyway, um, once I explained that to JC, I said, you know, I, I really like to get some experience on the nutrition and training side of things. So for my MPhil, I specifically looked at uh, protein intake. And uh, the, at the time, there was very little research looking at uh, protein intake in dieting strength athletes who were lean. Uh, so I wanted to explore the possibility that maybe the reason why bodybuilders anecdotally report that high protein intakes are beneficial, but the research has never corroborated that, uh, was because they're specifically finding that it's helpful uh, in, in, a, in a dieting state. And there was a lot of uh, mechanistic, re mechanistic research that would point to uh, protein being a more dominant fuel source when you're lean, active, uh, and also in a calorie deficit, and that those who lift weights benefit and can get greater gains when taking in a higher protein intake. So I thought, hey, during a bodybuilding contest prep, all those things happen concurrently, and that may be when uh, these anecdotally recommended higher protein intakes of a gram per pound or higher might be beneficial. And that was that line of research that I explored from 2012 to around 2014 that I still dabble in now and when I get the opportunity to do so. But that was the, the focus of my master's. Yeah, so to to go back to I think it was what you mentioned in Bryan College, you were you were teaching and you learned a lot about what you didn't know or didn't know how to communicate. Was it Bryan College that was you were teaching at? That's the one. Yep. Eventually became yeah, Bryan so, University, but yes. Yeah, so I think that's where you probably learned a lot of your skills of communicating science, uh, because that's probably one of your strong points. I don't know if that's something that you're aware of, but certainly I personally, as a follower of you who've now only began almost my academic career in specific nutrition and, and exercise that I've been following you for like, I don't know how many years, but you're, you're very easily able to convey your, the more scientific topics and break them down into everyday layperson terminology. And I, I suppose you probably agree with me and say that Lane Norton was quite good at that as well. And 
that's how I kind of got interested in, in science per se. But when I'm saying science, I used to just basically read through all the muscular development forums that he wrote on and just parrot what he'd said and quote that as science, but not really understanding, you know, mm. the, the true mechanisms behind it. But he was able to explain more complex topics and then put them into words that were you know, easily digestible for people who necessarily weren't in science or didn't necessarily want to be in science but just wanted to perhaps apply scientific uh, practices i think that's something that you're pretty good at especially with the the books that you've put out recently or i'll say recently but the last couple of years the uh, muscle and strength pyramids or is that what they're called i can't remember the exact name yeah muscle and strength pyramids so they're very easily digestible with often quite complex topics and even now i find when i'm diving into pubmed that some of the some of the research is actually even for me now and i'm like well i'm saying net me now but i'm not even that long into my academic career but it's quite complex to understand and to be able to then take that and digest that and deliver it to people who are you know like you said 40 and haven't been in academics for 20 years or or in high school or just out of high school and to be able to be able to divulge that and convey it in a way that everybody can understand it was probably quite difficult and it's probably one of the reasons why you've gained a lot of um i suppose notoriety in the bodybuilding community i i don't think you're wrong and I, a lot of kudos does go to some of my early influences uh and lane norton is among them uh, along with dr joe klimzuski um and uh, and a few others at the time who could do exactly what you were you were talking about they could distill complex information into practical application and do it in a way that you know a bodybuilder with a high school education who's in a totally different field and may not even be that interested in the science but knew what it how it could be applied. And then in the next post online, uh, on, on the forums or in a Facebook group, uh, they could get approached by someone who was heavily nerding out in the science and also hang there. So it was that, um, and I saw the connection between the two. Like you had to really understand the mechanisms to understand the application to then be able to distill it down and explain it to someone else. And there's a really good quote that's attributed to Einstein that if you can't explain something simply, uh, you don't know it well enough. And that was something I took to heart early on. And you're 100% right that the, the place I learned that skill uh, was at Bryan College. And I uh, got quite good, I think, at explaining it. And then I got really lucky in that a, a client who probably some of your listeners have heard of, uh, Matt Ogus, uh, came around, contacted us in, in 2010. I talked to him on the phone and we discussed a 2011 prep. And, uh, you know, I helped him through that process. And it was kind of the first time he had his, his eyes open to some very basic concepts that are, you know, absolute game changers for people who don't understand their importance of progressive overload in the gym and a calorie deficit when it comes to, you know, contest prep. And he got into much better shape than he had the prior year. Um, and it really just kind of totally opened his eyes. And uh, he was creating a YouTube channel at the time. This is back when there was only a handful of people doing YouTube and even like a 10,000 follower channel was huge. Um, and he asked uh, if, if it would be okay with me after his contest prep season to do some like Q&A videos. And this is kind of where I went from um, where, where, you know, like it seems like when you start to put out content online and you try to make a difference, you the, the amount of work you do to start to get that, uh, that, that, that ball rolling is so disproportionate. I was writing multiple blog posts a month. I was uh, posting on the forums all the time, logging. I was doing everything you could in that era of pre-social media to, to try to put out good information and start my career um, and really not going anywhere. But then all of a sudden, 
uh, everything catapulted around 2011. And it was the right timing because I had cut my chops at Bryan College. I had completed my, or I was almost completed my first master's. And I had been a coach and a personal trainer uh, now for, geez, like seven, six or seven years. Um, and I had competed in, you know, uh, 10 plus combined bodybuilding shows and, and powerlifting meets and helped close to 100 competitors do the same. So I, I actually knew what the hell I was talking about. And if I'd had this opportunity a year prior or two years prior, um, it probably wouldn't have gone well. I would have, I, if I was well known, it would have been for being an idiot. You know, it wouldn't have been good. Hmm. Um, and How do you know um, people don't know you for that still. Absolutely. I mean, there you go. That, that's that's my biggest claim to fame is being an idiot who doesn't know it. I'm the the, the, the shining example of Dunning Kruger. Um, so so yeah, I, I was I was given this opportunity at a time where I could actually deliver, uh, and I was able to provide. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things in those videos back in 2011 that I don't agree with today, which I think is a good thing, uh, and that I had wrong. But I'd say on the whole, I was providing utility. I was providing value, um, and based on the information we had at that time. I was probably more more right than wrong, you know, which is which is not bad. Looking back, almost ten years ago, um, and I was able to communicate things in a pretty reasonable way and a pretty understandable way for a you know young non-academic audience. And I knew when someone wanted me to bottom line it for them and and uh, help them understand a concept. But I also knew when someone was clearly lacking a really important aspect of critical thinking. Um, I knew when, and this is something that annoys a lot of people, but I, I just know how important it is. I've I've been able to tell because I've watched students go from the start to the finish of my class, and at a certain point, just memorizing knowledge can really bite you in the ass because it doesn't give you uh, the skills you need to actually be adaptable and apply to different situations. You know, when people just want a black and white answer, uh, when there is not one, uh, that's when I get a little more Socratic with them and I ask them to actually start thinking. Uh, rather than just simply trying to get an answer because that answer actually does them a disservice. Uh, it's oversimplifying something that is actually not that simple. There's another good quote um, from, I think also attributed to Einstein, that is uh, people, things should be explained as simply as possible, but no simpler. Uh, because at a certain point when you use a heuristic or you use a model to describe something, it becomes uh, more wrong than right and not no longer useful. Um, you know, there's a, also a great statistician who says, I'm just quoting the hell out of these cliches, but they're good, um, that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. And that's kind of where you have to draw that distinction. It's like, all right, this person is coming up to me. Do they need me as a mechanic or an engineer? You know, some people are a bodybuilder and they need to know what to do, but they still need to know why to do it. Like your mechanic still needs to tell you, this is why you came in here and needed your car fixed. Here's something you need to pay attention to in the future. Um, you know, guess what? You need to change your oil regularly, and here's why. And you go, oh, shit, I get it. Um, but you don't need to necessarily explain to them how a combustion engine works. If someone comes to you as an engineer, meaning that they have kind of this certain level of, of nerdy curiosity, they're still just going to get their oil changed every month, but they also want to know the intricate details of it. So I, I, I was getting better and better at identifying when it was appropriate to do one versus the other. And this was at a time when there were people who were always acting like engineers um, because they were trying to sound smart, you know, um, or that was they just didn't really understand the actual application and they were using science um, in inappropriate ways, not understanding the nuance to it. So I think I stepped into a uh, into into a niche that was rather unfilled. Uh, this is also a time when uh, people would use science kind of like religion. And it was in a period where people were at war with quote unquote bro science. Um, 
and people would, it was okay to be a complete asshole and, and use religion like a stick. Um, and the problem with that is, sorry, use, use science like a stick, almost like religion. And the problem with that is that it discourages critical thinking. You know, it, it silences dissent and you basically become a, a guru who uses science for marketing. Uh, and your goal isn't to actually teach people to be critical thinkers. It's to make yourself seem smart and right to criticize other people and to be the smartest person in the room. And that is inherently unscientific. Um, and that, that's kind of something that I, I saw as an important message. And um, I think, unfortunately, I was sort of unique in that way. Um, and I'm glad to see that change. It's not something I want to be unique in. I think that should kind of be the stock standard uh, because there was a lot of people who had quote-unquote evidence-based beliefs, but they were just parroting what their, their favorite personality said, which is no different than parroting someone who you know, says do this because the bros do it or because I'm a world champion yeah. or whatever. It, it, it's, it's like I said earlier, and I don't think I was necessarily using it as, as a stick, but I, I, I was no better than the, the bro scientists mm. the, back in the day. It's just that I was fortunate to, to find Lane Norton and the likes of Dr. Joe um, and yourself um, rather than finding Jay Cutler or Phil Heath, even though I actually did follow them, but uh, I was no better than somebody who was copying what they said. And you should do this because Phil Heath said it. When I was just saying, well, you should do it because Lane Norton says it. And I think with the, I, sp I don't really know why. I guess it's just because we're in a more of an information age that science is becoming more, uh, or evidence based, quote unquote, is becoming more popular now, especially in the the natural bodybuilding community. But a lot, like you, like you said, a lot of people don't have that critical element to it, and I've only even myself started to realize that I know less, and I'm, I'm almost less confident in giving uh, specifics or absolutes as I learn more. Because as you, as you know yourself, the more you learn, the more critical you can, uh, your thinking becomes. And you start to not guess, second guess yourself, but question um, results or question studies or or things that people do. And I think, um, you know, that, like you said, it, it's better if the industry does come that way. But how how would people that aren't necessarily going to go into academics, because obviously everybody isn't, how can they be critically or think critically without necessarily having that background in academics? Well, the beauty of it is that critical thinking. Um, is separate from the, the knowledge you have. Um, for anyone who's ever played like a video game where you have like role-playing stats, it's the difference between a skill going up and your ability. Like having a high intelligence score versus having a high like mathematics score or something like that. Um, so knowledge in a certain domain is not the same thing as your ability to uh, be rationally skeptic. Um, so if you can teach someone critical thinking and how to evaluate, uh, you know, whether information might be correct or not, uh, which is essentially giving someone like a BS detector in the fitness industry, um, those, th those are two separate things. Um, the beauty of, of the latter is that it, it is a teachable skill, but it's something we have to actually emphasize. So baked into a lot of the things I do are giving people to get people outside of black and white thinking kind of the biggest uh, sign of someone who doesn't have critical thinking uh, or doesn't have not really developed that or doesn't think of a certain domain in that way is trying to distill things down to black or white, wrong or, 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 or right, uh, you know, yes or no binary kind of answers. And you'll see this in media, for example, you'll get an expert on who will give them a 
five minute answer, and then the 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 newscaster will blink twice and go, "Should it? So is it bad or good?" You know, and it's uh, it's very frustrating, and it's typically the kind of stuff that you'll hear about nutrition passed around at at the at the dinner table. And it's not the problem isn't whether the information is wrong or right; it's that the entire frame of thinking about this information it makes it impossible for you to be wrong or right. Um, you're in almost always wrong uh, when you don't have critical thinking. So some of the things that I recommend people uh, do is to try to think in ranges and continuums instead of either on or off, uh, and to ask ask questions uh, that get to the root of root of things, and to realize that there can't be a one size fits all answer. This is not math. This is not physics. This is uh, dealing with people. You know, we're, we're talking about uh, having to fit. Uh, methods and strategies to individual contexts that include your your desires, your goals that are different, individual biology, psychology, sociology, uh, geography, you know, having access to different foods and gyms, etc., uh, and all of that. So some of the things that people can do who don't have uh, academic background is to, when they start to follow people to get information from, whether that's Jay Cutler, and there's nothing wrong with following people at a high level who are just athletes, um, just know what what information they have that, that that's that's useful, uh, and also following quote unquote evidence based folks. There's there's information that can be gleaned from both. Is to pay attention to things uh, that that go against critical thinking. So, for example, if someone speaks in absolutes, always, never, uh, must. Um, if someone tends to sensationalize things, uh, if someone tends to uh, instead of considering the the ideas or opinions of others, they deride them. You know, being condescending is essentially just a disguised logical fallacy. That's that's attacking the person rather than the idea. You're trying to discredit uh, the person uh, rather than actually addressing their ideas. You know, when you're dismissive with someone, and that's that's really the problem that I was talking about with kind of the the age I came up in was that you were allowed to be an asshole. And, 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 and so long as you were kind of using science, quote unquote, uh, you could be dismissive and make fun of people. But the problem there is that you're, you're just signaling to everyone around you that I'm smarter than them, they're bad because they're dumb, and hashtag science. Um, but in reality, what you're doing is you're trying to win an argument. And as soon as you decide I'm trying to win, uh, rather than I'm trying to get to the truth, you've entrenched yourself just as much as someone who entrenches themselves by putting their money behind an idea. Uh, you know, they, they, they now have a financial bias and they can't step away from it. You have an ego bias. You can't step away from it because then, oh shit, now I'm wrong uh, and publicly. And now I can no longer be the successful guru. Um, so the, the entire attitude of someone can give you hints as to whether or not they are a pretty good rational thinker, which means that their information uh, will hopefully evolve over time and it will more often be right or lead you towards being right eventually. So if they speak in terms of probability, which is the way science actually works, if they acknowledge that there are individual differences, uh, if they don't speak in absolutes, um, if they are not necessarily selling systems, but they may be like, there's nothing wrong with buying a book or buying something. If it talks about, uh, you know, a philosophy or theory or understanding the nuances of how to create something that's individualized. Um, but there's a difference between programs and principles. Um, and the same can be applied for nutrition. Anytime there's a one size fits all, uh, or anytime there are, uh, kind of hand waving where basically someone uses a lot of sciencey words, but they seem purposefully complex, that doesn't really teach you anything. It just convinces you that the person's smarter than you. So you just go, okay, yes, whatever you say is right. 
So you, you can see that science has been used as a marketing tool forever, going all the way back into the late 1800s and the dawn of the kind of the physical culture being marketing, being marketed. Um, sure, you can certainly take the, um, the appeal to authority of being an athlete, but the, the appeal to the authority of science has always been there as well. And that's simply when you say a lot of complex words, uh, you say something complex about, let's say, hormones. That's one that most people can, can relate to. Uh, and you sound like the smartest person in the room and you say things that are intelligible, unintelligible to most people. And maybe even to someone who was educated in science, they go, that sounds right. But wait a minute. There's a couple couple things that are assumed here or some, some leaps that were made. And then you go and all that nonsense and magic and guess what? Buy my book or buy my product or buy the supplement. So I think all of that is you can be fooled if it's just about knowledge. But if you were able to develop critical thinking and you can understand logic and you can understand when someone is displaying the behaviors that probably indicate they value the truth rather than they value you know, ego or the dollar or followers first, uh, not that there's anything wrong with making money or, or having followers or anything like that. But um, if your primary principle is, is getting closer to the truth, that should be displayed in one's behavior. And that's who you want to follow, regardless of uh, whether you are you know don't have even, even a high school education and you're just an athlete uh, or whether you're a PhD academic. Thanks very much for that, Eric. That's very well explained. And we're just about on time. And I want to thank you for going into such depth into your story i don't think out of all the podcasts that i've listened over the years a lot of the questions people often just picking on your your knowledge that you've learned along the way rather than your story so i really appreciate you giving this different angle and going into your journey along the way and it's, it's been very interesting for me to to listen to your story and you've had quite a big impact on me personally um, as a bodybuilder and also as someone who will eventually progress my academic career and you've helped me out a lot with my my masters and making decisions there so i want to thank you for that but where can we find more about eric and what are you going to be doing in the the near future well first i just want to say i really appreciate that that's uh, an honor you've given me and i think you're going to take this as far as you want adam and it'll be to all of our benefit for you to do that so much appreciated for the uh, the platform uh and the kind words as far as where you can find me uh, you can find me along with the rest of the team rest of the 3D Muscle Journey team at 3dmusclejourney.com. That is the number three, the letter D, uh, then the word musclejourney.com. And from there, you can find links to my books, uh, The Muscle and Strength Pyramids, which you mentioned, uh, or uh, our monthly applications and strength sport research review that I do along with Dr. Zerdos, Trexler, and uh, Greg Knuckles. Uh, you can find uh, the blog posts at 3DMJ that I contribute to regularly, our podcast that we're uh, well into triple digits now, and you can hear the whole team talking natural bodybuilding, powerlifting, and uh, kind of the whole coaching and, and competitive experience. Uh, you can also follow myself and Omar Isif on Iron Culture, which is available on Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube. Um, and then lastly, if you want more daily content, you can find me at Helms3DMJ on Instagram. And as far as what I'm up to, uh, I'm going to be continuing to publish research and trying to make all that open access that hopefully directly impacts uh, uh, the community of uh, drug-free lifters. And I will also be continuing on with Iron Culture uh, and, and the 3D Muscle Journey podcast. Uh, and then myself personally, I'll be competing, hopefully, if all goes well and I don't break, which is the goal, in weightlifting, powerlifting, and strongman doing the trifecta in 2020 and uh, finding out what that experience teaches me and um, 
And yeah, that's the plan. No bodybuilding? Not for a while, man. Competitive starvation is something that I uh, only come around <laughs> to every few years. This last time, eight years separated from my last season. Hopefully not as long. Yes, sir. Well, Eric, thanks so, thanks so much for coming on, and um, I really appreciate it again. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. So, guys, I hope you enjoyed some of that conversation with Eric Helms, if not all of it, and you took some value from our conversation. It definitely was a little bit different than what you're probably used to, especially if you do listen to some of the episodes that Dr. Eric Helms records. But I think that it's good to sometimes go a little bit off topic or off the beaten path of what is discussed on other podcasts. I think that he gives great information out on a lot of other podcasts, but I tried to take a bit of a different approach and try to understand perhaps the way that somebody thinks or the overarching principles of how somebody gets to where they have a lot of knowledge rather than just you know picking away from their knowledge so that people can start to apply that to their own thinking. And personally, I found it very helpful. I think um, it was a bit of a selfish episode because I do want to uh, pursue my career, I think, at this point in some form of academia or at least continue on in academics as I progress my career. So I this was a bit of a personal episode that I really enjoyed but that's the great thing about a podcast you can talk to whoever you want about whatever you want Um, but with that being said if you have enjoyed the podcast and you do like listening to it please do give me some feedback if you want to get any of the links that Eric talked about any of the books or reach out to him or uh, follow some of his work I'll leave all of the links in the show notes as well if you want to reach out to me you can email me my emails always in the show notes you can get me on Instagram you can send me a direct message or um, you can leave some comments on YouTube or iTunes or whatever it is but please do leave some feedback leave a rating and review because that does really help with me getting on guests like Eric in the future Um, but out Without further ado, though, I want to end on a a note here and say thank you for listening for the 2019. Um, It sounds like this is the last episode. Probably will have more episodes before the end of the year. But I want to thank you for listening to this episode, and I will catch you in another one.